Hello, my friends. This is director Michael Antonioni. You know me. I directed last week a movie. That movie uh, is called The Blow Up. Now, I'm here to talk about uh, this podcast. This podcast is uh, about British film. Now, you may ask yourself, why did this Italian guy, who's got a very weird accent, why did this Italian guy direct a movie that was on the British Top 100? Well, I don't know. I'm a weird guy. Are you from Texas, Mr. Antonioni? <laughs> Look, uh, you, you, you got to understand. Uh, the, the, I'm a man of the world, and my accent it varies across the way. But I was paid a number of dollars, as well as a 24-pack of delicious Bud Light, to stop by and explain it to you that this podcast is something that everybody's going to want to listen to. So uh, settle in, kick back, open up your own uh, little uh, bottle of Bud Light, and uh, listen to this podcast, and listen to these gentlemen do to this week's movie, what they've done to mine. And it made me so happy. Goodbye. So I'm not sure if that was Michelangelo Antonioni, uh, Yosemite Sam, or a Texan with a giant hat. Well, I was walking here on the way from across to the north side. As you know, I walked across the bridge, and this guy said he was Antonioni, so I figured it was pretty, pretty you know, it's fine to bring him in. Yeah. You, you, you take a lot of people for their word. Well, that's the thing. We've had mostly dead people, and I thought, surely this time we'll have a live guy. Because Antonioni, he's alive, right? No. Then I feel like I got conned. And you got conned, the listener, because I got conned. And we're not going to take this standing up, sir. No. No, we're going to take this sitting down. That's right, because, because that's how we do this podcast. Because I'm not standing up doing a podcast. That's recoculous. That's right. I, I work eight hours a day. I stand up eight hours a day. This podcast isn't supposed to be work. This podcast is supposed to be fun, Brendan. It is fun. It's very fun. So much fun. I'm having a lot of fun. I'm, you're having fun. I'm having fun. And you're going to accept the fact that I'm having fun. What what are, what are we, we doing? doing? What are we doing here? <laughs> I think this is a podcast. Okay, movies, right? Movies, British movies. Yes. So this is a podcast called For Screen and Country, and I am Brendan, and I'm Jason. And on this podcast, we talk about the top 100 British films of all time according to the British Film Institute top 100 list, as composed in 1999. Jason, we've covered, I believe, 27 of these I movies you. so far. Um, I could be wrong. I don't know. I, I think that's you. around what it is. Sure. We're past the quarter mark. We're definitely on our way to the third. On our way to the on our way to the second fifth, uh, as it were, uh, as we we do these in those those fifth. the four tenth. You might say, <laughs> you might say that, but you would no. You would reduce that to two fifths. You would reduce that as you would as you learned in uh, high school arithmetic. Did I? I don't know. I don't know. A long yet. time ago. We are, this is off the rails already, <laughs> but um, this week, we of course, we're talking about a, a very high, uh, high film on the list. It's very close to the top, but before we talk about that, Jason, we need to talk about last week. We need to read some comments from the uh, controversial film, Blow Up. Let's check him out. First up, Andrew Littlefield. He says, it's an interesting document of the time, but with the casual sexism of the hero and the oddness of the ending, I can't say I love it. Is he the guy that wrote that uh, that report uh, that supposedly linked autism to vaccines? Gonna go ahead. Is that Wakefield? It might be Wakefield. Never mind. Sorry, Andrew. Yeah, he's not the same word as no. Uh, yeah, and then uh, real quick, I'll just read this one too. This is real quick. Uh, prefer the film and inspired Blowout. That's from Vincent Frank Franconi. Franconi. Well, Vinny, we're gonna watch it uh, probably at some point. So we'll yeah. let you know. Well, you know, we'll we'll, we'll DM you. Uh, one Nathaniel Tyson. 
says, I don't know what it is, but Antonini, Antonioni, I, I had it last time. You had it. Anti, Antonioni. Antonio. Antonio. I'm going to stab you in the, in the throat. I don't, know what it, I don't know what it is, but Mikey has always left me cold. I don't dig La Ventura either, which I've not seen. So don't I can't lie comment. To me. You've seen it. No, I haven't. Don't lie to me. I've seen nothing. Jason. Jason. I don't watch movies. Oh, okay. Wait, that makes this podcast take on a whole different meaning. I've just been I've just been making it up as I go along, and it just I've been having I've been lucky. You fuck you're fucking solid. I know. So our our uh, friend, uh, I'm, I'm going to presume and call him a friend. I mean, yes. I've never met him, but Clever, he could be a friend. Very close friend. Adam Pellman, not Adam Pally. No, but close. But close. Adam Pellman. So they're probably brothers, because that's how that works, right? Who was the other guy? Adam Pacman Jones was he the guy that was in TNA for a while? Football player? Yeah. Yeah, sure. It was. He was in TNA for a while. He, he, they, they, and he almost never wrestled. And he was really scared of ghosts? I think so, yeah. yeah. I think he was really... He was always being chased by them. Yeah. If y'all see Clyde, you tell him to get the fuck out of here. Anyways. I love it, says Adam Pellman. Although the above comments about casual sexism are spot on. The narrative have always sucked me in, even on repeat viewings, when I know where it's headed or not headed, I suppose. I think the film's detective story serves as a perfect vehicle for Antonioni's preoccupation with existentialism. The search for a solution to the film's central mystery gives the protagonist a sense of meaning. And when that solution proves unattainable, he fades into nothingness. Just like Back to the Future. That idea of the existential detective story is very influential. You could see it at play in Memento, where solving a mystery also gives the protagonist's life a sense of meaning. Plus, it's just fascinating. It's just a fascinating look at the inherent voyeurism of visual media like movies and photography and a true time capsule of 60s swinging London. And it's got the Yardbirds in it, which has to count for something. Yeah, how many how many movies were the Yardbirds in? One. Yeah, this one. Yeah. Yeah. Is it even British? The Yardbirds? No, this movie. I mean... You could argue. Well, I mean... I mean, it's an Italian director, but I guess... It's full of British people, and it's set in Britain. I guess. And I'm sure the British people paid for it. I was going to say, it's an Italian director, but it is one of his few English language uh, movies. Is there... I mean, Britain. The spirit of empire, right? People from all over. Empire Records, yes. Yes, they, they come from all over, and they submit to the Queen, and they contribute. Yeah. Yeah. Now, to be fair, Italy, not a part of the British Empire... But not for what? For, not for not trying. George Lucas? <laughs> oh, I've always been a big fan of colonialism. Oh, God. And you'll notice uh, in some of my movies, uh, specifically uh, THX 1138 and uh, Star Wars Return of the Jedi. Uh-huh. Uh, the best I, one. I show how colonialism is actually a benefit. Uh, for the world. Uh, you, oh you can also see this message uh, deep in um, the character that Ron Howard plays in American Graffiti. Very much a colonialist at heart. George, uh, I think I see a movie that needs to be re-edited over there. Oh, I gotta go. He, he also go. farted on the way out. <laughs> he just crop dust us. What's with people doing that? They really don't like us. Uh, well, I think Robin Shepard likes us. Oh, well, what does she have to say about this movie? Well, she says, I've watched it a couple times. There are many elements that I enjoy separately, but I never really feel very fulfilled once the film ends. Yeah, I get you. I get you. And that's kind of like, I, I think, yeah, for me, I think it's like, I weirdly, I didn't feel that this time. Because I think normally a movie that kind of ends like that, I'm like, oh, uh, okay. Because this feels more, a lot more deliberate. Do you know anyone who goes to an art gallery and comes back from the art gallery going, holy shit, I want to look at paintings all day. It was fucking amazing. No. 
you appreciate art. You don't necessarily get excited about it. And I feel like this film, this film is like is like the equivalent of a painting. And you know, maybe you're not necessarily going to get excited about it, but you can't help but appreciate the the artistic artistry of it. At least to me. Yeah, I I think I mean I think I appreciate it, but I think I actually genuinely liked it a lot, like what? more than just like you know. Want to get some brewskis on Friday and and just get, just get down with some blow up. I mean, it's not that kind of movie. Exactly. But- that's the only kind of movie that matters. Michael Bay's Blow Up. All right. Uh, Holden Martinson, our last comment here is from Holden Martinson. He says, Blow Up is one of the great movies about art. Oh. Because even the photograph is just about what we see in a photograph. What does it say about the real world? Or what does it say about the world? What is What about it is true or real? Every piece of art is in and of itself a puzzle that we each get to decode. Consider the very obvious on-the-nose brilliant tennis match at the end. If it's real to the mimes, why can't it be real to us? Why can't it change how or what we see around us? Anyway, terrific movie. Probably Antonioni's best. Hey! Meatballs! We are going to get a call from the Italian Anti-Defamation League. Spaghetti! Yeah, stop it. Pasta linguini. So we've seen a very wide selection of, of opinions on this movie, and uh, yeah, that's And that's cool. what I expected. That's what I like to hear. It's a very divisive film, I yeah. think. If, if everybody's just licking the movie's butthole the whole time, it's, you know, it's... Really it's disturbs really me listening. that that's what you go to for the sucking <laughs> up thing. Well, moving on from there, Jason, we are going to uh, compare this movie to the AFI list. So, mm-hmm. so Blow Up was number 60 on the BFI. Mm-hmm. And number 60 on the AFI is the 1933 Marx Brothers classic Duck Soup. Which I'm ashamed to say I have not seen. That is a real shame because if you like Mel Brooks, you would love Duck Soup. So you would say Mel, Brook, Mel Brooks owes a lot to the Marx Brothers. I would say yes. Any any zany hijinks type comedy with like a lot of, uh, like, you know what? Any spoof mm. comedy, any satire like that, parody... I think owes its whole life to Duck Soup. So, because it is kind of a movie, it's only a movie I saw this year, by the yeah. way. But even with that being said, I would give it to Duck Soup because I fucking like it's it's great. I love that movie, and I'm definitely gonna have to check it out because I do love Groucho Marx. I've watched a, a number of episodes of uh, You Bet Your Life, and I watched him on the Dick Cavett Show in his later years. Uh, but by default, you have to give it to Blow Up. I guess so. Yeah. Not much you can do. Enjoy that, you Italian meatball. <laughs> Is he still alive? Nope. You dried up Italian meatball. <laughs> <laughs> so there you have it. BFI, AFI, do with that what you will. Done. But, but now, Jason, we have to talk about this week's film, and it's going to be Hitch. So, of course, that iconic theme can only mean one thing. We're talking about number four, Jason. Number, number four. Four. On right the, outside the top three. Just just standing off to the side of the podium, just weeping silently. Just going to say, 
If I was in charge of this list, number four would be a British movie about golf. Oh. Mm. Mm. Get it? Do you uh, get my joke? Uh, my jab? The 18 holes? Four! Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> you can get this uh, on another podcast, too, folks. <laughs> what? <laughs> you can get all this on another podcast, too. You can get double the dose of Brendan every yeah. week. Every week. Twice, twice a week. Twice a week. But yeah, number four on the list, uh, one of two Alfred Hitchcock movies on this list, 1935. Jason, this is the oldest movie on this list. Really? Yeah. The 39 Steps. Do you want to know how old this movie is, Brendan? Uh, in the opening credits, it, when, well, the credits, because in those days, all the credits were at the front. All of the credits are opening loaded. credits. But yeah. you, when you see, like, the production logo come up and showing, like, the government logos, that it is a, a, a co-production between, like, the government of the UK and the Irish Free State. That's how old this movie was. It, Ireland was still known as the Irish Free State, and that changed in, I think, 19, or 1937, 1938. It became the Republic of Ireland. Does that so, mean <laughs> that it was Irish-free, like you couldn't have an Irish accent in Ireland? Well, that, that's right, and that's yeah. why everybody's Scottish in this movie, because it's clearly all Irish actors playing them. But we'll talk about that as it comes up. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's get into it. So, um, 39 Steps, 1935, starring Robert Donnett as Richard Hanney. Uh, Madeline Carroll as Pamela, Lucy Mannheim as Annabella the Spy, Godfrey Teal as Professor Jordan, John Laurie, who I do want to talk about a little bit, as the Crofter, Yes. also John, yep. uh, Peggy Ashcroft as Margaret the Crofter's wife, and of course, last but not least, Wiley Watson as Mr. Memory. Mr. Memory! Yeah, so that uh, that is also a big part of this movie. So Jason, the 39 Steps, 1935, Alfred Hitchcock... So what you gotta know right out of the gate is that the main character of this movie, Richard Hay, is a goddamn fellow Canadian. Oh, Canada. The home native land. Robert Donut. Do we call him Robert Donut? Like, I don't yeah. know how to pronounce it. Our name. patron acting man. <laughs> Yeah, Robert uh, Robert Donut plays. Uh, I don't know if he. I I assume he is I hardcore know. British. I don't know if he's a Canadian or if no. He's, he's just not. A, he, he clearly is no, not. No, no. I'm not saying the actor. Yeah. I'm saying I think the character is supposed to be British, but no, I think he's, he's just he's Canadian of British parents living in Canada. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he is clearly not Canadian because no. early on, when uh, Mister Mem- when he when he asked Mister Memory a question, I know what you're gonna say. Uh, do you have a clip? <laughs> Well, let's wait until we get to that. So all right, all right. Well, we'll talk about it when we get to it. So let's talk about this movie. So he's Canadian. He's clearly not Canadian, and we'll mention that as it comes up. <laughs> so on vacation in London, our boy, our Canuck, Richard Hannay, decides to take in a show at a music hall, which is what you did back in the 30s, because if the movie theater was full, there was nothing else to do. Yeah. It was Again, uh, I'm reiterating a theme that we've had throughout this entire podcast, that in the old days, there was nothing to do. Nothing to do, and you know what? There's nothing like free air conditioning. That's right. So they went to this music hall, which I get the feeling this place wasn't air conditioned. Uh, Probably not. Uh, I feel like it was very smoky and very smelly. Uh, and a lot, a lot of alcohol. I smell a lot of alcohol on the breeze. Um, so he's uh, he's at this music hall. He's doing some vaudeville shit. There's like, a, there's like a, an orchestra. Um, but the main attraction comes up uh, as he sits down, and it is uh, Mr. Memory. Mr. Memory. And again, this is the 30s, so you could do shit that you couldn't get away with today. His whole gimmick, Brendan, Mm -hmm. is that he has a really, really good memory. And he has memorized thousands of facts and figures and can repeat them back 
to anybody that asks. Well, and now, since we're at this point, do you want to hear a little bit of Mr. Memory? Please do. And now I think our other point will come up about our main character probably not being Canadian. Yeah, yeah, well, we'll get into that. Let's let's take a listen here to Mr. Memory in action. A question, please. Ladies first. Where's my old man been since last Saturday? On the moon. In quad. How can he A serious question, please. Uh, what won the Derby in 1921? Mr. Jack Jones, humorist with Steve Donegawak, won a length at the odds of six to one. Second and third, Craig and Aaron and Lemonora. Am I right, sir? Right. What won in 1936? You come back in 1937 and I'll tell you, sir. <laughs> How far is Winnipeg from Montreal? What won the cup in 1926? Cup? Waterloo, football or tea, sir? Football, silly. <laughs> Chelsea win it. 63 BC in the presence of the Emperor Nero. <laughs> that causes flipping poultry. Shh, don't make yourself so common. Well, our fellows are funny, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> How many races did Mick the Miller win? How old is my wife? When was Crip in hand? <laughs> Who was the last British heavyweight champion of the world? Henry VIII. My old woman. <laughs> Bob Fitzsimmons. He defeated Jim Corbett, heavyweight champion of America, at Carson City, Nevada, in October 1897. He was then 34 years of age, sir. Am I right, sir? How old is my wife? I know, sir, but I never tell a lady's age. So, okay. you, so, yeah, so the clip, I thought it was in there, but it was not. But when uh, we heard Robert Donnett ask, how far is Winnipeg from Montreal? Yeah. And Mr. Memory gives him the answer in miles. Yeah, which, which and, in the back then, yes, made sense in the 30s. But Robert Donnett does not question that at all. No, no, he does not question it. But And you'll also notice, too... Um, what is that in kilometers? Also, call him Hannay. We're talking about the character, not the actor. Oh, so, okay. Well, I think it's, I think it's Hanny. Hanny, whatever. Actually. But uh, when he says... The sun will come out tomorrow. The, the, this, this Canadian guy. Now, you're listening to two Canadian guys speaking right now. Now, we're from the Maritimes, so we have our own particular accent, but... Um, if you listen to this guy, he says, uh, how far is it from Montreal to Winnipeg? That's Winnipeg. Some... We, we, I thought he, at first, I thought he said Willoughby. Well, and even Mr. Memory <laughs> is like, Winnie who, sir? Winnie who? <laughs> Winnipeg? Because I've never heard anybody in Canada ever call it Winnipeg. 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 Winnipeg? Winnipeg. Who's going to win the pig? Who's going to win the pig? Get the bag. Get the pig in the bag. So yeah, so he's clearly a fake Canadian, so we want to get that out of the way. We were real tired of people playing Canadian face on TV and in movies, and <laughs> it's insulting. Hashtag Canadian lives matter. That's right. Our lives matter somewhat. Yeah. We're all right. Mm. Also, crowds, real tough in this time, like real heckly. Well, a yeah, lot of heckling. As you heard. Like, yeah. like, and, and to be fair, Mr. Memory is not a guy that is, he doesn't seem like, despite the fact that he does this a lot, he doesn't seem to be a guy that like rolls with the punches. Like, he doesn't seem to be real funny. No. He just, he knows the facts. That's his thing. He doesn't. A serious question, please. Like, come on, man. Like, just roll with it. I know it sucks. Hecklers are not well, fun. Well, he, he gets into it a little bit. Like, when they say, like, how old is Mae West? He's like, I know, but I never tell yeah, ladies' see, age. Yeah, he eventually does. But it's like, sure, surely he would be used to that by now. Yeah. I feel like if he's a legit performer and this is what we're going to spend the next 90 minutes talking we about. are mr memory's legitimacy nope <laughs> <laughs> this is not brazil jason 
So the crowd, as I said, they're heckly, they're rowdy, they're going on, they're having a good time. But back by the bar, there's a lot of drinking going on. And you can tell there's a lot of drinking going on because there's rough men back there drinking. You can tell they're rough men because they got those flat caps on. That's how you know. They're manly men. They're manly men. And one of them gets just a little too rowdy and the security guard comes over and tries to grab him and he tries to scramble away and they get into a bit of a scuffle and then more people get into a bit of a scuffle and then it turns into a damn near uh, uh, western bar fight before a number of shots ring out. Bang, bang, bang. That's what the shots kind of sounded like. That would be amazing. Yes. Um... So uh, that that sends everybody into a hoo-ha. They start screaming and running for the doors. Um, Hane, uh, or Hanai, Hani, Hanu, Hana, Hana? Hani. Let's just say Richard. Richard. So Richard is at the, so Richard is going to run away, but a young lady grabs onto him, or he finds himself attached to a young lady. But they manage to scramble out, and uh, when they're outside, they start having a little chat, and uh, she is very forward and wants to go back to his place. And we should he, note, this is where the Hitchcock cameo happens. It's real quick. Yes, he's um, standing by the bus or something. Yeah, they go yeah. on to get they got onto the, the bus, and just as they're getting onto the bus, Hitchcock and one of the screenwriters walk right by. Ah, yes. I, apparently he's also in the crowd scene later in the movie. Yeah, I think that one's like a little harder to yeah. spot, but yeah. Uh, so yeah, so th- she seems very forward and won't even tell him her name beyond Smith and wants to go back to his place. And of course, it's 1935 and he's a white man, so he's like, well, shit, I'm getting laid. <laughs> So they go back to his place, and he offers her a drink and all that stuff. But she reveals that her name is Annabelle. Maybe. We don't know. Annabella. Annabella. It could be. It could be something else. It could be. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. We I, don't I, know. Is it, just a, is it just an Italian name block for you in general? Yeah, Annabella. <laughs> Annabelle Antiononi. Antiononi. <laughs> so there she... Uh, so she reveals that she is a, a spy, a foreign agent. Actually, is her preferred term, an agent. Uh, and she's trying to thwart... Another spy who is attempting to smuggle some very important air defense information out of the country. Yes. She's being chased by assassins. And and she tells him that the man behind it is a man who is missing the top of his pinky finger. The nub. The nub, you might say. Perhaps Mm -hmm. some some sort of British Yakuza. Yes. And she calls them the 39 Steps. Bum, bum, bum! But she doesn't expand upon what the 39 steps exactly no, are. No, because he's like, what is that, a pub? Yeah. yeah, it does sound like a pub. Yeah. I, I would go to the 39 steps. He's a steps. charming... He, I want to say right now, that the guy, uh, Robert Downey plays Richard, he's very charming. He's very charming, and, and, and absolutely. And I feel like this... And we can talk about this when we get into the yeah, thing, but yeah, like, yeah. this is a very prototypical... Like This is a very important historical role, because this role sets the tone for many of the kind of heroes that we have today. Yes. Um... And she leaves, but then comes back later in the evening as he's laying down and walks in the door and immediately keels over a knife shoved in her back. And guess what, Brendan? She is dead. That's Are you crazy. Sure? Yeah, Are you sure? no, no. She's she totally dead. Did you check her pulse? Well, he did, I think, didn't he? Maybe. I don't know. I think he just he assumed she was dead. Well, she had a knife in her back and she wasn't moving. It's, so. a, th- it's a movie in 1935. If you, like, literally got shot in the leg, you were dead. That's true. <laughs> well, yeah. In movies, do you ever find that, like, in, in a lot of those old movies, it's like a shot could be, like, to, like, the your ass. And, like, they'd be like, oh, and they'd be dead instantly. That actually would be quite, that actually was cutting edge if they got shot anywhere except directly in the chest. Because mm. that's where they would always clutch, you know. But in the days before squibs. Clutch the chest and or uh, pearls. Oh, oh, my pearls. Oh, I'm so offended by this death. <laughs> <laughs> this death is problematic. So, in Annabelle's hand, though, is Annabella. a map. Annabella. Annabella. In Annabella's hand, there is a map. And on that map 
is Scotland. And in Scotland, there's a small village whose name I cannot pronounce. Alt Shelniak or something like that? Something like that. Did you notice, too, on the map uh, for Scotland, there's a place called Killen? Yeah. I thought that was... That's pretty cool. It's interesting. Killen. I mean, it's probably a real place, but it it's definitely thrown in there to be, a, you know, a subtle little, like, clue. So, yes, and on this map is the town uh, circled. Yes. So, for some reason, he decides, because this girl uh, died in his house and he almost fucked... He's got to take care of her mission because it's important for the nation. Well, she also said she was meeting someone there. And he's not even British. He's Canadian, sure. Yeah. But she also said she had to meet someone there, right? Yes. And, and you know, there's going to be a twist later. But uh, she said, I'm going to this place in Scotland to meet this person to give them this information yeah. about the spies or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. So he decides to do that. But then he the phone starts to ring. And earlier the phone had, had rang and Annabelle... Uh, had told him not to answer it because it was probably for her, and he thought that was weird, but he went along with it. But now the phone's ringing, and he looks out the window and sees some men in a phone booth calling, mm -hmm. and probably calling him. So he's got to get the fuck out of there. And so he goes downstairs, going to leave, and a milkman is coming in, and he proceeds to have an exchange with the milkman where he barters away for the milkman's clothes. Well, good morning, sir. You are out riding early this morning? Could you use a pound note, brother? What's the catch? I want to borrow your cap and coat. Yeah, wait a minute. What's all this? What's the big idea? I want to make a getaway. Do a bunk? Yes. What have you been up to? I'll have to trust you. There's been a murder committed up on the first floor. By you? No, no. By those two men out there. I see. Now I suppose they're waiting there as good as gold for a copper to come and arrest them. It's quite true. Listen. They're spies, foreigners. They've murdered a woman in my flat and... Now they're waiting for me. Oh, come off it. Funny jokes at five o'clock in the morning. All right, all right. I'll tell you the truth. You married? Yes, but don't rub it in. What's the idea now? Well, I'm not, you see. I'm a bachelor. Oh, are you? A married woman lives on the first floor. Does she? Yes, and I've just been paying her a call. And now I want to go home. Well, what's preventing you? Well, one of those men's her brother, the other's her husband. How do you see? Why didn't you tell me before, old fella? I only wanted to be told. Trying to keep me with a lot of tales about murders and foreigners. Here, put this yeah. on. Put on my little hat. There you are. Take the pardon. No, 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 sir. You're welcome to it. You do the same for me one day. I love that. I love the, the conceit of him telling him the God's honest truth and him not believing him and then coming, coming up with a very, like mundane lie yeah. he's just like oh well why didn't you say of course oh you're having an affair well <laughs> hell he was shit yeah buddy I get it I get it I got an old battle axe at home I understand I'm married don't rub it in <laughs> how do you feel about all this anti-marriage stuff Jason I'm very opposed to it my sweet wife Katrina uh, uh, and I would never support this kind of talk oh boy here we go it's Jason's soapbox <laughs> now <laughs> oh god cut cut his mic <laughs> so yeah so he knows now that he is gonna he's basically on the run for a murder he did not commit. Again, this is 1935, and this might sound very cliche, but this is one of those movies that established this cliche. Yeah, it is not cliche in 1935. No, this is, this is pretty crazy. Um, so he heads for a train, the, the Flying Scotsman train that is heading up to Scotland. Mm-hmm. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? Logic checks out. Sure. So he gets on the train, he sits down with some men who are, uh, which is a funny little scene of... The two salesmen discussing women's underwear because they seem to both sell it and there being a pastor sitting across from them who becomes rather uncomfortable at the whole situation and eventually leaves 
uncomfortable, but also I thought a little interesting. Yeah, yeah, like, interested. Yes, exactly. Like he's curious, <laughs> but he's also like, no, this is I, I can't. This is oh my position, my job, my me. Like, Women's underwear. Oh, oh my god, oh. what if I have an attack? Oh, oh lordy. So when the pastor leaves, he gets into the the train cabin, I guess you would call it, and sits down. And but then, uh, did the guy show up to the door? Is that what happens? Because he eventually gets up and leaves again. It results in a chase through the train. Uh, no, what happens? So what happens here is uh, once the pastor leaves, uh, Richard is sitting there and hears them overhears them talking while they're reading the newspaper, right? Because they read about the murder. Actually, right. I do. I do have this one too. This okay. clip too, because I love how Hitchcock is building the tension with them talking about the murder. It's yeah. already in the paper, by the way, which is kind of quick. But <laughs> they're real, real good reporters. <laughs> yeah, those yeah. Um, but they're already talking about the. I guess they had nothing else to do. Fifteen minutes ago. <laughs> <it happened. laughs> <laughs> they're talking about the murder um and then he's building tension building tension building tension and then flat because they get sidetracked by something else in the paper and i just really like the way they they do this scene so i'll play the clip here all right hello well what about it there's been another woman murdered in the west end flat what woman murdered in west end flat uh these sex dramas don't appeal to me what one a uh, bachelor butt good seven to four oh not so good portland mansions portland place by the bbc that's a nice quiet place to put someone to sleep. Good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs> That's a good one. What was she like? One of the usual? A well-dressed woman of about 35 with a knife in her back. Lieutenant Richard Hanney is missing. You surprise me. <laughs> At 7 o'clock this morning, the charwoman Elizabeth Briggs... Well, if that isn't the blasted living... What's the matter now? Is there no honesty in this world at all? I ask you. The new bodyline rubber panty corset. On sale today, McCutcheon Brothers, Princess Street, price 17 and 9, brassier to match, 4 and 11. Do you get that? The body line. 1 and 3 cheaper than our streamline. No use going to Aberdeen now. Why don't I have a look at your paper? Yeah, so yeah, just, just them talking, it's, but then, you know, like real people do, like kind of wandering through a conversation. Yeah, it's great, and like, I don't know if you're familiar with the other Hitchcock movie on this list, The Lady Vanishes. No. Okay, but these two characters... Uh, kind of remind me a little bit they're kind of, it kind of seemed to me like a precursor to two characters that show up in Lady Vanishes of uh, Charters and Caldecott mm-hmm. who we'll talk about when we get to that obviously but just keep that in mind like their banter is very similar to me yes um, and it's just funny that like he cuts off the tension yeah. with them note like oh look at this Brazier ad yeah, because exactly. the murder's not important to them shop. right exactly their business is what matters to them like it's only important to us as the viewer and to Richard and to Richard <laughs> but to these characters yeah. they don't care it's just something that happened so he, he gets uncomfortable and gets up and leaves the cabin and is spotted by some police officers and begins a chase through the train. Um, he eventually ducks into another cabin with uh, a young lady. Hashtag me too. Whom we come to know later as Pamela. Yeah. Um, and he basically forces himself on her to protect himself from the police or to hide himself. But she's not having it and alerts them. Yeah, he he kisses her to pretend they're like a yeah, couple. Yeah, yeah. And but but and, and that happens actually in a lot of movies. But surprisingly, in 1935, she's just like, "Hey, no, fuck off, guys. He's right here." Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so he takes off again through the train, and they run down, and he basically ducks out a side door, and jumps off the train and hides on the fourth bridge, which is a famous uh, bridge in Scotland. Still there, still there. It was built in the late 1800s, and he hides on one of the pylons. And it is only the efforts of the impatient conductor demanding that they get the train moving because why the fuck would you stop the train on a bridge, Brendan? Not a good idea. And so the police, are, I guess, are scared enough of him that they get the train moving. You don't know where Sesu Hayakawa is hiding. You That's do right. not want to stop on a bridge. <laughs> 
Mm, you will fix this bridge. <laughs> and you're canceled, too. Yeah, I'm canceled again. <laughs> it's going to be a long life. So he, he, yeah, so he manages to escape and then wanders through the Scottish Highlands until he gets to a nearby village where he meets a poor crofter and his young wife. Played by John Laurie, who I don't know if you know um this show i figured it might you might be because it's like a british it was like a british sitcom for like 10 years so it seems to be your wheelhouse uh he was on a show called dad's army i'm familiar, familiar with that i have not seen a lot of it but i i am familiar with it can yes. i can i play the entire clip from dad's army because this is him, it's it's about a two minute clip but it's him uh just telling this like monologue story oh please do and it's great all right so so here's a little side venture folks enjoy this clip from uh the 1970s sitcom dad's army yes with john laurie who plays the crofter who uh, Richard is about to meet in this movie. And reminder, this is not in the 39 Steps. Nope, but enjoy anyway. We're anchored off a wee island about uh, 20 miles west of Samoa. And Jester told me that he'd heard that there was a ruined temple in the center of the island with a huge idol that had a ruby the size of a duck's egg set in its forehead. She was determined to get it. So soon it was dark, we rode ashore, armed to the teeth, and set off through the jungle to find the temple. After about two hours hacking our way through the undergrowth, we came to a clearing. There was the temple, the ruined temple, covered with jungle creepers. The place was deserted. We crept inside, and there it was. A huge idol with a great ruby in its forehead. As the shafts of moonlight struck down through the holes in the roof, it burned like fire. Jethro gave a cry of triumph, jumped up on the idol, and hacked the ruby out of its forehead with his knife. All this time... I could feel eyes, horrible unseen eyes, staring at us. I could stand it no longer. I shouted, let's get out, and we turned to go. And then we saw it. Barring our way in the doorway was the witch doctor. He gave a scream that turned my blood to ice. He shook a bunch of bones in Jethro's face, and he cursed him. <laughs> After all these years, I can, I can still hear that terrible curse. Death! He screamed. Death! The ruby will bring you death! Death! <laughs> Did the curse come true, Mr. Fraser? I son it dead. He died. Last year, he was 86. <laughs> Goddamn. <laughs> See? Long road, but it was worth it. And the crazy decision. thing about that is that it was probably in like the, the early 70s. Early that was 70s. Probably, that was like 35 to 40 years after this movie. And he looks and he 70 looks, in this Yeah, movie. exactly. He looks like he's 75 in this movie. <laughs> he's very um, old. But yeah, that's, I just want to give a little context to John Laurie because he, like, later in life, uh, a little bit later after this, was kind of a big deal. I mean, he was also in um, 
Henry V, which we watched. I don't oh, yeah. remember the role he played, but he was in the 1944 uh, nice. Henry V. And he's also going to be in Hamlet as well. Sweet. Um, so, and, and it's nice that we got to listen to him do that, because in this movie he plays uh, a Scottish stereotype. I mean, yeah. <laughs> a Scottish stereotype to the point where, uh, like, basically the... the if you saw like a Nazi movie and how they portrayed Jews, this is how this Scottish person is portrayed. He is he is grumpy. He is super cheap. He haggles with him for payment for staying at his house, and uh, well, later on he just goes the full the full mile, um, the full Monty. You might you might say. say yes, the full Monty. And, he and takes off is, his pants. This is a, this is a very uh, a very interesting subplot of the movie because we get this what his wife yes who clearly was kind of forced to marry a much older man because mm-hmm. he even asked richard even asked oh is that your daughter and he mm. says that's my wife um so she's clearly forced to marry a much older man uh for the for you know for the financial security i'm guessing i assume so or because she had no other option yeah and she and as soon as richard is there she's kind of pining like what's the city like like what's it like out there oh i'd love to be out there and he says well we could talk about it over supper and she's like oh no uh john john would never have that he would never let me talk about that he doesn't like to think about that stuff there's a pretty (laughs) controlling relationship yeah absolutely that he has over her um it's just interesting because it's not anything I've I've never seen anything quite like this in a Hitchcock mm. movie, like a very like interesting kind yeah, of relationship, weird here. little like sub movie almost. Yeah, it's like this could it could be its own movie. Yeah, so the so yeah they they get talking and they have supper and he stays there for the night and he's becoming quite friendly with the wife. Um, and at some point the old guy has to go the old crofter John has to go check out the barn to make sure he locked yeah. the door. That's what he says. Yeah. And so he goes outside and immediately goes around to the window and sees them talking to each other in a very friendly way. And he thinks that, he, he, he thinks that they're going to have an affair. He assume, I think he assumes it's already happened. Yeah. Which, <laughs> which is funny because it's another, like, it's a misconception, right? Because yeah. really he's just trying to explain to um, Margaret, yeah. I believe is her name, uh, his situation. Because she had noticed in the newspaper... The article about the the murder and his name and everything and his face and his face. I think they had a picture of him somehow. <laughs> somehow, again, this this super good newspaper that comes out fifteen minutes after shit happens. This is a Back to the Future uh, universe. Yeah, six to twelve daily editions delivered. The Harry, it's like that Harry Potter newspaper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it shows him running down the stairs and out. It's just a rolling gif on the front page. It's like Gary Oldman thing where he's just screaming at yeah. screams at whoever's reading. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so he sees them having a friendly conversation, assumes they're going to fuck, and gets real mad. Um, but then the... Uh, uh, Popo. The Popo show up. Mm-hmm. And the wife tells John to go out and, and delay them. And he's like, why, why would I do that? <laughs> and Richard has to be like, look, I'll pay you. And he's like, oh, how much? <laughs> he's like, I got five pounds. And so he's like, okay. And he pays him. Again, Scottish stereotype. You got to pay the guy. And 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 John is also like, okay, just just go back to bed. I'll take care of it. And Margaret's like, uh-uh, don't trust him. If they give him more money, yeah. he's going to reveal where you are. So she uh, sends him off into the night, but is sure to make him change his coat because his coat is too bright and they'll see him. So she gives him her husband's dark coat. And at this point, when he's running, I think this is when we see the auto gyro. Yes, this the little, is the little plane. This is an early, like, prototypical helicopter dealie. This is how important this guy must be to them that they're willing to haul out this experimental technology in the 30s to go chase him down. It's a, it's almost like a little drone. 
Well, no, it's, it, there's a guy flying it. It's a well, real. Well, that's what a, I mean. Like it look, but it looks like when I first saw this, yeah, it, I it was like, looks like it looks like the fuselage <sighs> of like a Spitfire with a with a friggin' propeller on top. Well, because like, it looks small, right? Yeah. So when I saw it, I, the first time I saw it, I was like, they have fucking drone technology mm-hmm. in 1935. What the shit? But as I understand, autogyros were first invented in the 20s. So this, you know, this was early in the early in the world of the helicopter. But still, a weird thing to see. So cool that Kitchcock got one for the and, movie. And it feels very last minute added because it's literally he he looks off to the side and it doesn't even really look in the right direction. Yeah. And then they kind of cut to just this cut thing to just the flying, autogyro flying and then over. back and then that's it. <laughs> I mean, that's cool. Maybe maybe there's some stock footage. <laughs> yeah, it was cool. I just, it, it was I could tell it was late edition though. But he, he tells her he won't forget her, and he heads off into the night. And they give chase, and they fire a couple shots at him. Uh, and But but he runs across the moors. Days, nights, I don't know how long he was running for. 15 minutes, maybe? Who knows? But he eventually gets to a house. Now, here's an interesting thing. In As I understand, in the original novel, mm-hmm. the, the, the fact of the map didn't happen. Right. So in the original novel... Uh, Richard randomly walks into a house yeah. and meets this guy that he's going to meet. It's very coincidental. It's very coincidental. Which Hitch- all of Scot- Scotland's a big place. Yeah. And uh, to randomly walk into the right house. So in the, even Hitchcock was like, that's stupid. Well, that's what I mean, yeah. <laughs> even Hitchcock, as if he's some hack. He's, some hack. he's like, even Hitchcock's like, that is dumb. Even Hitchcock, the Juve Bowl of his time, yeah. was just like, that's stupid. Can you imagine? A dumbass like Hitchcock. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, back to the movie. <laughs> that this idiot made <laughs> real class a dumb dumb real klutz <laughs> so he's chased across the moors as we said and he goes into this house uh, which is the house that in the village that he was going to so it was it was helpful that he was in the area and he was able to go directly there so when he gets there there's this dinner party going on and he's introduced to the professor whose name I don't know but it's not relevant um, he uh, Professor Go- Professor Jordan. Professor Jordan. I don't know that his name is even said. Is it said? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I think he says I'm Professor Jordan. Professor Jordan. So he starts chatting with Professor Jordan, and it's like this dinner party of all these, I assume, educated people, friends of this professor. Upper class. Upper class sorts, yeah. yeah. Drinking and smoking and having a grand old time. And so, of course, they put a drink in his hand, and he lights a cigarette. And It's 1935. What else are they going to do? That's right. Exactly. There's nothing else to do, especially here in the middle of nowhere in Scotland. Yeah. No TV. Yeah. So he's able to speak to the professor and uh, gets to talk to him privately and explains what's going on, that he is, you know, was on the run and that he had been sent here. Um, and he was to meet with the professor because he was taking up Annabelle's mantle. Annabella, Annabella's mantle. Annabella's mantle, a movie we will cover on this podcast. Yeah, and then he explains to him that he was told to look out for the guy who was missing the pinky finger. But he says the wrong one. But he says, he says the wrong side. Yeah, he says, oh no, he says, uh, the, I believe it's this finger or something. He points to like his ring finger or yeah. something. And, and and then Professor Jordan is like, do you mean this finger? And bump, 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 he's the guy. Professor Jordan is the villain. So that, that also like leads you to believe that if, even if Annabella had gone to this place to tell this guy about what was going on, she probably would have got caught. She probably would Just yeah. like he is. Exactly. Yeah. And so they kind of come to a standoff, and he's like, so what are we going to do now? And he's like, well, I'll tell you what, the, the honorable thing for you to do, being a murderer on the run, would be just be to take this gun I have in my hand and kill yourself. And he's like, oh, I don't think I'm going to do that. And he's like, oh, okay, well, I guess i got to kill you. So then he shoots him. The, the best part of this is his wife walking in yeah. and sees, seeing, this, seeing Professor Jordan with the gun yeah. in his hand and just casually... 
is is he going to join us for supper? He's like, no, I don't believe so. And she's like, very well. Like <laughs> she, she she knows exactly what this whole ordeal exactly. is. Exactly, that's just business as usual for her. Yep. So uh, so yeah, he aims the gun at him and pulls off a shot, and Hannah goes down in a heap, and he starts to fade out. And I'm thinking to myself, dead. Wow. I, I saw this movie before. I didn't realize this happened this early. Uh, and then it turns out, no, he's not actually dead. He, he we, we fade in and he's in the sheriff's office in the nearby town telling the sheriff about what happened and how the uh, coat that he had been wearing that had been given to him by the young Scottish wife of the crofter had contained a, a Church of England hymn book. Yeah. Or Church of Scott, I don't know. It's, it's a, a hymn book, book anyways. Hymns, yeah. And he had been shot with this tiny pistol... Uh, the bullet had been so tiny that it had lodged itself in the book and thus saved his life. Yep, and we also uh, get a cut. They also cut back to the crofter uh, looking for his coat, yes. which is how we sort of set that up. And, and then, well, I think he's specifically looking for the hymn book. Yeah, he's looking for his hymn book, right? And she says, "Oh, it's in your. Is, it was in my coat." And she says, "Oh, I gave it to the young man." And then you hear him hit her yeah, no, off he, screen. Yeah, off screen. He like he like looks mean and walks over off screen, and you just hear him beating the shit out of her, and it fades back, and that's the last we ever hear of them. Yeah, but I mean, it's, what a little mini tragedy playing out. It is a mini tragedy. It's like, it, but it's like, it's that story is so well done. Yeah, it's just such a small amount of screen time, yeah. but it's just really. Cool how they... Maybe Hitchcock wasn't the dumb idiot we thought he was. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, and so that, and of course, that completes that Scottish stereotype by turning him into a wife beater as well. Yep, and he wasn't even wearing a tank top. Nope. Uh, so, yeah, so he explains to the sheriff that he had, like, played dead and got out of there and come to town and wanted to talk to him. And the, and the sheriff's like, yeah, no problem, I believe you. And I'm sure that the rest of the world will believe you too. Oh, laddie, if you tell me, if if you're as convincing with with the other police as you were with me, you'll be just fine. You'll be just fine. I don't know why he's Irish, but because they're in Scotland. But but then a bunch of police enter the room all of a sudden, and no, the sheriff swerved him. Turns out the sheriff thinks he's a murderer, and he's gonna get what's coming to him, and they arrest him, or they try to arrest him, but he instead decides to bail out the window. In classic style. I assume he's the first person to ever bail out of a window in a movie. At least maybe in a talkie. Probs. And he uh, takes off down the street. And we get what has to be the first cinematic instance of uh, losing the cops in a parade. Yep. Which is conveniently going by at night. Uh, there's a Shriners parade going on. And he begins marching in it. And they run by. And he's saved. So he ducks out of the parade and into a side building. And walks in, and uh, he gets the... Did you ever see that episode of Seinfeld where, where George and Jerry get picked up at the airport? They just assume they're some random guy. They just say they're, they're that guy, and it turns out they're going to, like, a white supremacist. Uh, uh, no, you never saw that? No. Anyways, that's basically what happens here, although they're not white supremacists. He walks into this group of people, and they assume he's a speaker, so they send him on stage, and he sits down, and he's promptly introduced and brought up to the podium. Yeah, and this is another, uh, yeah, I definitely want to play a little bit of this. So he, he basically, he, yeah, he's brought up to the podium, and he finds out he's at a, basically like a political town hall meeting, yeah. and he's just kind of spitballing this speech. Yeah. It gets them pretty roused up, riled up, and if you listen to it, he's kind of explaining his situation. Yeah. <laughs> so let's just uh, take a quick listen here. And I ask your candidate and all those who love their fellow men to set themselves resolutely to make this world a happier place to live in. A world where no nation plots against nation, where no neighbor plots against neighbor, where there is no persecution or hunting down, where everybody gets a square deal and a sporting chance, and where people try to help and not to hinder. A world from which suspicion and cruelty and fear have been forever banished. That is the sort of world I want. Is that the sort of world you want? 
Clearly, he uh, has a career in politics ahead of him. Perhaps he'll serve in the government of William Lyon Mackenzie King during World War II. <laughs> I, I that that had a real uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington vibe. For yes, me absolutely. Too. Mr. Uh, Mr. Henne. It's funny to they didn't they didn't pick out his starkly Canadian accent uh, uh, to show him to be a fraud. Wait a second, he's not British. <laughs> Listen up, guys. I just want to live in a world, you know, where where everything's cool. And cold, like and cold, my beer. Like my beer that I'm drinking now with my toque on my head and my fried bologna in my plate. I was going to say my pants. My pants. I keep my fried bologna in my pants. I refer to my penis as fried bologna. That's upsetting. <laughs> oh, that's, oh, you want to get that looked at. It's fine. And not just by anybody. It's by somebody who's qualified. Oh, all right. Take a look. What do you think? Oh, I'm not qualified do you for like, this. Do you think it's okay? Or? No, I, you uh, just, yeah. you might want to put a little cream on that. A little mustard? Yeah, a little mustard. Mm. Okay. All right. Yeah. But he's recognized by the Lady Pamela, the girl he tried to make out with on the train. The Lady Pamela? The Lady Pamela. I'm being very formal. It <laughs> sounds like a razor. <laughs> Get your Lady Pamela. Well, Lady Pamela shaves her way up the aisle and re- recognizes him and tells the police and they see him and... Uh, He's apprehended after he gets off stage, and they tell him, "Look, see, we're going to take you to the police station." And he says, "He says to Pamela, make a call out, make a call out, let them know what's going tell on.' Tell the Canadian consulate, get a hold of them. I need yeah. help." And then we find we kind of discern that these people that want to take him away are not the police. They're not police, no. And so they they drive in a uh, they they take him and they insist on taking Pamela too. Yep. Even though she doesn't really have anything to do with it other than she alerted them. And so they put them in the car, and they're driving, and they're like, wait, we're not going to the police station. They're like, ah, oh, nah, no, don't worry about it. We're going to another police station that's 40 miles away. So yeah. we'll get there in two hours. Don't worry about it. We need you to formally uh, uh, identify the suspect. Yeah, yeah, we just need you to point him out. Which makes no sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, that's a no red sense. flag. That's a red flag. But they're authorities, so they go along with it. And yeah. so as they're driving, they also realize that, no, they're not going to that police station because they know the road to that town, and that's not the road they're taking. And they bring that up, and he's like, ah, the bridge is out. We got a different way. But thankfully, we are saved. We are saved. because By well, a bunch well, of detectives. Yes. Hanny <laughs> does figure out that they must be going back to the professor's house. Yeah. Um, but they are, they are saved by a very uh, smart and present flock of sheep. Or as Hanny calls them, a bunch of detectives. A bunch of detectives, yes. <laughs> the uh, the car uh, drives up on the road, and there's a bunch of sheep on the road, and the car can't get past. And that is when Hanny and Pamela, kind of against her will, uh, take the opportunity to leave. Well, they're handcuffed together. They're at handcuffed this point. together yeah. at this point. Uh, very old school style. So they yeah they they get out, they run away, they're chased, and and long story short, they hide under a waterfall. Uh, which was clearly a set that uh, had been created, but still looked pretty I don't cool. know what you're talking about. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, they eventually must have just give up on them because they get away. Well, they, and it's really, like, uh, foggy, too. Very foggy, and so that allows them to slip away into the night and find yet another village that is nearby where there is a hotel, and they check into that hotel as a young married couple. Yes. And the, the landlady uh, has suspicions that maybe they aren't married, but they're young and in love, and she likes that. She, she wants to protect them. She wants to protect them, and she says she won't, uh, she'll, she'll protect them. She because, won't, uh, because at this point, yeah, she, she says, uh, she, says, she thinks something is up, and they're like, he's like, okay, we're a runaway couple, don't tell anyone. And she's like, oh, I won't. Absolutely. And, and surprising, because everybody else has kind of fucked him in this movie that he would trust anybody. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, and she kind of saves their lives. She she does absolutely because I mean this is right here right when the 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 two uh, thirty nine steps people show up that's that's a little bit later oh we're, sorry we're getting there we're getting I don't there. mean to jump the gun so in the room so when they're in the room together Pamela wants to get out of there and she's gonna like 
scream or yell, and she starts uh, kind of futzing around. And he grab he reaches into his pocket and points a quote unquote gun into her bag, and is like, "No, do what I say, and we'll just get through this." And so the landlady comes in, they play it play it cool, and she. Uh, you know, is told to fuck off, basically. Not, no, I mean, they don't tell her to fuck off because she's real nice, but she gets out. And so then they decide they got to get the handcuffs off, but that's a difficult prospect. She has a nail file, and he says, well, good, in about 10 years, we'll have them off. Yeah, exactly. So they decide to eat some sandwiches and, and have a nap. And, and uh, this is, we get a lot of, like, uh, like it's a, basically a screw-all comedy at yeah, this point. Yeah, at this point, like the, the banter. And again, 1935... Pretty early on, screwball as far as the screwball comedy goes. Yeah, well, like, wasn't this like right in the heyday of Preston Sturgis and guys like that? Like around the same time, but at the time, fairly new. Yeah. So, anyways, they they eventually are tired and they fall asleep on the bed. But Pamela wakes up before him and manages to slip the cuff off, and she's very happy about that. And so she decides she's going to get the fuck out of there. But she hears some voices, and so she goes out onto the balcony and downstairs, talking to the bartender, are two men, top men, you might say. That uh, that uh, are of the 39 steps. And she hears them mention that as they're on the phone talking to someone. And as they go about talking, she realizes, oh shit, he's not he's not full of shit. He's mm. not lying about them, you know, about this, this shit that's going on. I think they're talking to uh, Lord... Uh, what the fuck is his name again? Uh, Professor Jordan's wife. Oh, okay. Yeah, because it's a female they're talking to. So yes. I can only assume because I don't think the daughter knows anything about no. it. I think it's just him and the wife. And so she runs back into the room, and meanwhile downstairs, uh, they are asking a lot of questions about, uh, you know, if anybody would come in or whatever, and the dutiful old guy at the bar is answering as he's, like, pouring aye. a drink. Aye. 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 And, but then the wife comes in and gives, uh, starts giving him shit, because he's serving what she assumes to be police after they've closed, after hours, which is illegal, mm-hmm. and she's like, no, you're not getting a drink here, I won't be arrested for this, I won't be fined, get out, get out, get out, and she shoves them off into the night, and then she turns around with a smile on her face, and, oh, you sweet thing, and then kisses her husband. And <laughs> which is funny, because, like, oh, and it's such a contrast to, like, the crofter and his wife. Yeah, exactly. Too. But it's also funny, because she thinks that they're there... To kind of bust them as a runaway couple, I think. Yeah. And really, it's much worse than that. Yeah. But she kind of stops them for her own reasoning. and then Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. She's, just, she's just a sweetheart at heart. So she goes back into the room and decides, you know what? Maybe this guy's right. I'll catch some Z's and, uh, and uh, deal with him in the morning. And so she puts a blanket on him and then goes and lays down on the couch and realizes she's cold. And so steals the blanket back from him and falls yeah. asleep. When they get up, she tells him what she heard, and while he's happy that she believes him, he's also really pissed that he she didn't wake him up sooner so that they could, you know, get a move on. Understandable. So they had said, she, they, the men had said something about the London Palladium, so he decides that he's going to head to the Palladium and he sends her to go to the police in London mm-hmm. to tell them about the, about the, the, the documents, the air defense yeah. documents and the 39 steps and all that. So Pamela does that. She goes and informs him about the plot, but... Doesn't have any evidence, so they're just kind of like... And they said there's nothing missing. There's yeah. nothing been reported yeah, there's missing. there's nothing so been reported missing. I, so. They don't know what plans they could be talking about. Exactly. Uh, so she takes them to the Palladium, where, where Hanny well, is. Well, she goes to the Palladium. Well, they the follow Palladium. her. They follow her. Yeah. She kind of takes them there unknowingly, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Han- so Hanny goes there, and while he's there, he hears the song. Because he had a song stuck in his head throughout the movie. We hadn't mentioned it yet, but he keeps right. whistling this song, and he can't figure out where he heard it. When he gets there, he hears it again, and he realizes, oh, shit, I heard this at the music hall uh, at the beginning of the movie that I'm in. Mr. And uh, who comes out but Mr. Fucking Memory, baby. Yeah, yeah. And he realizes, 
oh shit, this is where he puts it all together. They're not smuggling the documents out, just taking them. No. They're telling the information to Mr. Memory and smuggling him out of the country. Because he's committed all this with his fantastic memory yes. to his brain. He also has a tragic biography in this movie. Oh, absolutely. So uh, so, so the, the, the cops show up. The cops show up. And Hanny is in there, and he notices in the balcony, too, that the professor is there. Yeah. Watching the show. And, uh, and he cops, signals Mr. Memory. Yeah, he, like, he like gives him, and Mr. Memory gives him a look. Yeah. And um, so the cops see Hanny, and they go to grab him, and are pulling him out, and telling him, don't make him, don't ruin people's entertainment, don't ruin their evening, just be cool about this. And he, like, shouts, instead, he shouts at Mr. Memory, what are the 39 steps? He says, and, the 39 steps are an organization of... Spies. Spies, blah, blah, blah. And then... Professor Jordan shoots him. Shoots him with his tiny gun from the balcony. On stage. Boom, and Mr. And Mr. Memory goes down. And then the professor decides to pull a John Wilkes Booth and jumps over the balcony down onto the stage. But unlike Booth, who broke his leg and still got away, uh, he's immediately arrested. Yes. Not killed, surprisingly. <laughs> Not killed, no. Just uh, just a little shaken up, I imagine. Yeah. So, um, so then we get to the point, we get to the finale here, mm-hmm. because Mr. Memory is laying... He's basically... He's, he's having his dying breaths here because he's been shot. He's going to die. Yes. But just before he does that, uh, Richard asks him to tell them the information yes. that... And I want to play that yes. uh, uh, clip here. So Mr. Memory, again, basically on his deathbed on stage, uh, relaying the information he's been told to smuggle out. Yeah. Mr. Memory, what was the secret formula you were taking out of the country? Would it be all right, me telling you, sir? It was a big job to learn it. The biggest job I ever tackled. And I don't want to throw it all away. Sir. It'll be quite all right. The first feature of the new engine is its greatly increased ratio of compression, represented by R minus 1 over R to the power of gamma, where R represents the ratio of compression and gamma. Seen in end elevation, the axis of the two line of cylinder, angle of 65 degrees. Dimensions of cylinders as follows. This device renders the engine completely silent. Am I right, sir? Quite right, old chap. Thank you, sir. So that was the information. It was pretty pretty minimal, but the, the different compression ratio. But yes, what's really funny is that that actual information is not really that important to us watching. No, it's such like a it's such like a MacGuffin. I mean, like it's, it's the thing that they didn't really need even need to tell us. Yeah, other than that he had this information. But um, what's great is you have the music in the background because they're like the show must go on because yeah. they're having someone else perform immediately after. So like, everybody calm down. Someone just been shot. It's all right. We'll just keep going. And while this is all going on, we see uh, Pamela and and uh, Richard their hands kind of come together and they hold hands yeah. and that's where the movie ends. And Mr. Memory dies. Mr. Memory dies. They're holding hands and that's the end. Boom. 39 steps. You've been stepped up. Stop staring at me and say something. You're dead to me. <laughs> so Jason, now that we've gone through the 39 steps, I want to get into the background of this movie a little bit and Alfred Hitchcock a little yeah, bit. Yeah, sure. So of course, uh, the 39 steps very, very loosely based on the book, we should say, mm-hmm. because they changed a lot of stuff. Um, by John Buchan. And of course, the book uh, takes place 1914 in London, just before the outbreak of the First World War. Uh, and then the character Richard Henney is actually an expatriate Scot. Hmm. And he is visited by a stranger, of course, that knows of a. But this is, the difference is he's visited by a stranger who knows of a plot to assassinate the Greek premier. 
he explains that uh, this stranger explains that he's faked his death and mentions a group of German spies known as the Black Stone. Ooh. So the thirty nine steps is referring to like an actual set of steps somewhere yeah. in the novel. Um, so basically, and they're set to take British military planes. So that's pretty much the same thing. Uh, the stranger is killed, much like how Annabella meets her fate in the in the film. And Hannay sets about to prove his innocence, keep the British plans out of the hands of the Germans. Uh, you already mentioned the thing that I was going to say here, but the one thing that Hitchcock improves on was the coincidental meeting he has later with yeah. uh, Professor Jordan um, by having that map earlier in the movie. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's based on the book. Um, this movie was actually a major attempt. There's a, a production company, uh, Gaumont British, mm-hmm. who uh, Hitchcock was actually doing a lot of movies for at the time. And this was their first major attempt to establish movies in, like, international markets. So the budget for this film was about £60,000, mm-hmm. which uh, most of which went to uh, Robert Donnett and Madeline Carroll because they actually had a little bit of box office appeal in America. Okay. They were kind of not like you know Humphrey Bogart yeah. later on or anything, but they were they they were names like people knew who they were. Hitchcock himself. When we talk about Hitchcock, we have to talk about uh, we can't we can't not talk about women in Hitchcock yeah. movies and how his treatment of women has been kind of controversial on both sides. You know, and shitty, and shitty behind the behind the scenes and sometimes on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know they had this idea of the Hitchcock blonde, and this movie was actually. Kind of the first movie with that idea, the Hitchcock Blonde. Of course, Madeline Carroll in this movie as Pamela. Um, there's even a comment, Roger Ebert, when he was talking about this movie, he said, The female characters in his films reflected the same qualities over and over again. They were blonde. They were icy and remote. They were imprisoned in costumes that subtly combined fashion with fetishism. Hmm. Uh, they mesmerized the men who often had physical or psychological handca- handicaps. Sooner or later, every Hitchcock woman was humiliated. Which, I mean, she does kind of get humiliated in this movie at some point. It's not nearly as bad as, like, you know, the girl gets treated in, like, Marnie or something. Yeah. But it's, uh, um, at this point, how many, okay, if you had to guess, 1935, at this point, how many movies do you think Alfred Hitchcock had directed? Oh, I don't know, four or five? Eighteen. Wow. Eighteen films. Uh, and plus more that were that have been lost to time. Actually, the year before this was The Man Who Knew Too Much okay. with uh, Peter Lorre. Um, his first version of that movie. He was also still doing... So he did movies for Gaumont British for about five more years. And actually, uh, before he did Rebecca in 1940. And that actually gave him his only Oscar. Mm. So that was like... He's about fear. Like, he he was known in Britain. People in America kind of knew who he was. But this is like pre... Like, huge fame for yeah. him. Um, one thing I actually learned while uh, doing some research for this movie... Was that Alfred Hitchcock actually kind of had a lifelong fear of police? Yes, absolutely. Famous, famously. Yeah, no, I, I, oh. no, I never, I'd never heard of that. Um, so there's an incident when he was a child when his dad sent him to the police station with a note. He gave it to the police station, and they locked him in a cell for a few minutes. So, like, I don't know what was on the note, but uh, and then they said, "This is what we do to naughty boys." I don't know why I made them Irish. <laughs> this is what we do to naughty boys, and. It's kind of interesting because after this, he he was so scared of doing anything illegal that he didn't want to drive a car in the slight chance that he would get a parking ticket. Like, he was 
petrified of police. And mm. I think that's why he has so many movies where it's like an, an accused man, a wrongfully accused man on the run. Because yeah. that stems from his own psyche. Like, he's terrified of yeah, that. Yeah, and, and the police are all, especially in this movie and, and in other ones too, but they're very set, they very much believe he is a murderer and that he's a bad man and that he needs to go down. And the only time they really change their minds i guess is when the evidence is right in front of them yeah and it's really like it's not even a sense that you get that you get you don't really get a sense the police like figure it out it's just that the police are happen to be there yeah. when it gets solved exactly there's a quote here too uh, we kind of said this too but it was said by a lot of people that it's not much of an exaggeration to say that all contemporary all contemporary escapist entertainment kind of began with this movie yeah this movie really establishes a formula and 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 a pacing yeah, that, oh, I, that I can't imagine was common in 1935. It's 86 minutes long. Yeah, it moves. Yeah, like you go from scene to scene to scene to scene. There's no bullshit. Like it's yeah. just cut, 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 cut. Very. It's like it's plot. It's like A to B to C to D to E to F. It just goes. Yeah. Also, I want to note Mr. Memory is based on a real music hall performer uh, named William Bottle. Huh. And and a lot of people too asked uh, Hitchcock. Well, people were, uh, people were confused as to why. You know, we talked about the end when he says, "Who are the thirty nine steps?" And Mister mm-hmm. Memory says, "Well, people said, why would he say that if he was trying to, uh, you know, work for Professor Jordan? Why would he just feel compelled to say that?" He's and a Hitch- cyborg. Yeah, you got it. He's a robot. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Hitchcock said, uh, the whole idea is that the man is doomed by his sense of duty. Mr. Memory knows what the 39 steps are, and when he is asked the question, he is compelled to give the answer. So it's like he's kind of like a soldier. Like, if you ask me, I have to answer. That's, no matter- his, that's like his character. That's his kayfabe. He yeah. has to answer. <laughs> he's totally in character <laughs> the whole time. I think Daniel Day-Lewis might have played Mr. Memory now oh, that I think shit. about it. Daniel Day-Lewis is 9,000 years old. <laughs> he's a vampire, an acting vampire. Um... Let's dive in a little bit to the movie. Um, I noticed this movie is kind of it opens with kind of a Hitchcock staple, especially in his early movies. He likes to open with scenes that will seem innocuous at the time, mm. like opening with this Mister Memory scene. Yeah, you watch the movie for another hour, you're like, I guess that was just a way to start us off. Like yeah. you don't think it has anything to do with the plot, um, but he does that a lot. And he generally uses these like unimportant quote unquote scenes in like a comedic way. Mm. Um, and of course, another Hitchcock stable, Innocent Man on the Run. Yeah. This is like the first, I think, the first major one. Um, I think The Man Who Knew Too Much. No, that wasn't The Man on the Run. I think The Lodger was like 1927. Yeah. That's like a really early Hitchcock. Kind of the same thing, but he wasn't so much on the run. It was just a wrongfully accused and then, dude. And then later in his career, I mean, North by Northwest, and I think there might have been one other too. I mean, was like I, I think I think there's elements of that in almost everything. Like even Vertigo, mm-hmm. I think there's elements of that in. Uh, um, I don't know. I don't. <laughs> I haven't watched Jimmy Stewart's kind of mentally on the run in uh, Rear Window. Yeah, I, it's another one I haven't seen. It's a great movie. I, I, I haven't seen a lot of Hitchcock movies, but I've seen Rear Window, and that is a good one. And Lifeboat, too. <laughs> and The 39 Steps. There's a little, there's a, some cheeky little dialogue here. There's there's a thing here with, um, we talked about earlier in the movie when Annabella wants to go home with Richard. Mm-hmm. Um, did you notice what he says? The first thing he says to her, she says, I want to go to your place. And he says, well, it's your funeral. <laughs> Literally what happens, if you come home with me, it will be your funeral. It turns out that he was writer than he could ever have imagined. And and then that scene like that with Richard and 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 Annabella, there's so such the tension is so good. Like the way he creates the tension, because they're in the dark room and she's kind of scampering around. She's like, Don't turn on the lights, wait till I'm against the wall. Okay, you can turn on the lights, toss me that footstool. Like 
There's no music. Yeah. Most of the movie, there's no music. So it's all about like the placement of the actors and like the lighting. Well, it's like when you first watch that movie and you see this happen, you think, what is wrong with this crazy woman? And yeah. then, of course, looking back, it's like, no, no, she's just taking precautions. She's on the fucking run, man. Exactly. Oh, I think I got a vibe here um, that Don't Look Now might have lifted something from this. Yeah. So, you know, I don't. it's a real quick scene, but when he goes on to the train mm. and he st- he boards it or whatever, they cut back quickly to a woman inv- investigating the room he was in mm. and seeing the body. Like, and we don't screaming. see the body. And screaming, but her scream is just the train whistle. It turns into the train That's whistle, yeah. It's great. right from Don't Look Now when Julie Christie uh, has that moment. Yeah. When she screams near at the in the opening scene and it turns into, like, the church bells. Well, and, and actually, you see that similar kind of cut in uh, Once Upon a Time in the West early yeah. in the movie when they're shooting when they go to shoot the kid and it just cuts to the train whistle like, yeah like yeah. It, it's it's a it, it, I mean I think it starts here because it's a thing that we've seen so many times well, but just like even the fact that we've already seen it on this list is crazy enough right well you know what they say if you're gonna steal steal from a dumb idiot <laughs> you've had all this time <laughs> that's right <laughs> Another cool little thing, just a quick thing, but when he's in the crofter's house and he's looking at the article, I don't know if you noticed, but the way the candle lights it, it looks like there's like a little noose around. I did not notice that. Yeah. Fancy. Mm. Mr. Detail over here. Pretty good for a dumbass. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> a moron. <laughs> oh, and another thing too, I think gets used a lot, is this idea of Professor Jordan being the villain. Because it's like this thing where he's this like exquisite gentleman and he has this sort of because uh, I don't think anybody at that party is necessarily a villain they're just like upper class rich people and how many times have you seen that in a movie where the villain is like this upper class dude who nobody suspects because everyone loves him everyone's a friend of his that's like every Bond movie and despite the fact that he shoots two people he never really has a moment of like going nuts yeah but it's not other like than a- jumping over the balcony but, but he doesn't make like- a fuss about it that's like a lot of Bond movies, yeah. right? Like yeah. a lot of villains in those movies, outside of maybe Blofeld, yeah. um, are just like these upper class people. Even Goldfinger, mm-hmm. like he has a lot of like powerful friends, and not not everyone knows what he's up to. And... Oh yeah, the, the spy genre owes a lot to this uh, to this film. Do you think it's interesting that we did this movie the week after we did uh, Blow Up? Mm-hmm. Which was a, a kind of an anti-spy movie. Yeah, well, which was a movie that I expected to be more like this movie, and it right. wasn't at all. Right. It's kind of interesting that this is like this is kind of the the real version. Yeah, the movie we expected exactly. happened this week. Yes, <laughs> you are correct. I am correct. Uh, I also wanted to point out just special props to the waiters on the train when they're chasing uh, when they're chasing Richard through the dining car, and the police come bounding through, and that waiter manages to not knock over a single thing off his tray as they like push past him on the train so i mean it's to be under i mean it's understandable you work on a train you got to be good about holding your dishes but good for him so salute well, to that man who's probably been dead for 70 years your great granddaughter is listening i hope you know that your great grandfather was a he's a real champ champion among <laughs> champions that was probably like take 82 let's yep. be real <laughs> um Actually, uh, so we talked about uh, we talked a little bit about Richard and Pamela as like this. Bi- they're kind of bickering for a lot of the movie, yeah. and I want to play another clip of them. Uh, this is when he uh, he just kind of settles in because he's tired of arguing, and he's like, "Oh yes," he's finally just like, "Yeah, I was, I've been murdering people for a long time." Like he he's kind of given up on trying to convince her, right? Yeah. And I got kind of a Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn vibe from this little like scene, so I just want to play a little this scene here. Do you know when I last slept in a bed? Saturday night, whenever that was. Then I only got a couple of hours. 
What made you wake so soon? Dreams? What do you mean, dreams? I've always been told murderers have terrible dreams. Oh, but only at first. Got over that long time ago. When I first took the crime, I was quite squeamish about it. I was a most sensitive child. You surprised me. Used to wake up in the middle of the night screaming, thinking the police were after me, but one gets hardened. How did you start? Oh, quite a small way, like most of us. Pilfering pennies from other children's lockers at school, then a little pocket picking, then a spot of car pinching, then smash and grab and so on to plain burglary. Killed my first man when I was 19. <sighs> And in years to come, you'll be able to take your grandchildren to Madame Tussauds and point me out. Which section? Oh, it's early to say. I'm still young. But I'll be there all right in one department or another. Yes, you'll point me out and say, Chicks, if I were to tell you how matey I once was with that gentleman, you'd be matter. I don't know if it's a function of the accent that he's speaking in or, or if it maybe is a direct reference to that performance, but the way he tells that story sounds very much like when Mr. Humphreys on Are You Being Served, who's the, the kind of the second-in-command of the men's department and, and very campy, campily gay, tells an offhanded story. Just the the, the way, like, the, the sound of the tones and how he kind of goes up at the end of his sentence sounds very much like Mr. Humphreys. I don't know. It just reminded me of that. And I don't know if John Inman uh, saw the 39 Steps and, I mean, and thought sure that, or, or if it was literally just a coincidence or maybe a function of the, maybe a similar accent, but... That's really cool. Unfortunately, John Inman is also dead, and I can't ask him. Uh, I believe you can, because the mausoleum is right over there. Well, yes, but they don't tend to let us interact with him. They just tend to come in most of the time. Occasionally. Hopefully he's in a movie we cover. Well, that would be lovely. I would love to see him in something. Another thing that pops up in other movies, there's even a, there's literally almost this exact line. It's like, out of all the people in the world, i got to be chained to you. Yeah. Like, that's a thing that, how many times have you heard that? Of all the gin joints in all the world, yeah. she had to walk into mine. Exactly. <laughs> And during that whole scene that I just played a clip of there too, Madeline Carroll's doing some great like facial acting, like facial mannerisms. She's she's kind of uh, don't you you disgust me. <laughs> she's doing some slight, just uh, like a slight smile, but also she's trying to stifle it at the same time while he's making jokes. So it's showing her kind of warming up to him a little she's warming bit. Warming up to him, but she doesn't want to. She, she doesn't, doesn't want, want to. to know. Yeah, and even like at the end of that clip, we cut it off, but she's she says. She kind of laughs and he says, what is it? And she's like, nothing, you're hurting my wrist. Like she tries to like, you know, shut that down. Um, I do appreciate in this movie how did they, at the end of the movie, they clearly have a little bit of affection for each other, but it wasn't like that this movie then thrust them immediately into a relationship as so often happens in movies. Like they go through a trauma together and it's like, hey, I guess we should be in a couple now. I heard this on another podcast one time, but like marriage in these old movies is so like, quick mm. and people get divorced so quick yeah. and it's just handled <laughs> so loosely and yeah that is Im- impressive that they at the end of the movie they weren't well, you just know, like, we're comes, getting married well, when it comes down to it Brendan you gotta cram it into 90 minutes to 2 hours yeah that's why it happened so fast if only for those poor women it was this easy back in those days so the last thing I want to mention and then I don't think on my notes anyway uh, another the last Hitchcock staple that I kind of noted was I don't know if you noticed this, but a lot of his movies, he likes to set up the final scene at like a well-known landmark. Um, there's the Man Who Knew Too Much remake that's at that big uh, Carnegie, Carnegie Hall, I think, or something yeah. like that. In North by Northwest at the, the what do you call it, uh, Mount Rushmore? Yeah. yeah. There's all, like, 
be, and, and Hitchcock's always said like he wants to create a familiarity because mm. it helps people to kind of place themselves in the scene and kind of like it, it creates even more tension because you know what's kind of the geography of the building yeah. uh, or at least like what it looks like so and we get that here the the very that music hall is a real music hall mm. that he was filming the Palladium at. I believe it's very famous the London Palladium yeah um, that's all I have if you have any more things you want to mention go right ahead I have at least one thing I need to say okay the bird is the word no, there's one. There's one line that uh, made me laugh because I don't understand it totally, but I just it just was kind of funny at how offhanded it was said. Is she when they were in the room? She was like complaining that he was going to hurt her or something, and he goes, "No, no one's going to hurt you. This is Armistice Day. Armistice, Armistice Day, which like Remembrance Day, I guess. But what a weird thing to say. <laughs> like that's the one day that women don't get raped is on Armistice Day. Wow, <laughs> isn't an Armistice like an agreement not to like? Well, it was it, it's an agreement to end a war. Yeah, Gen- well, I guess b- that's... before a peace treaty, but to end like immediate hostilities. I'm guessing that's the joke. Just yeah, like I guess so. No it's war. Armistice Day. No, yeah, <laughs> peace. Oh, I see. Yeah, it's funny when, when jokes make sense and they're explained to me. <laughs> All right, Mike Bullard. <laughs> Look, I'm doing my Mike Bullard right now, but you, the listener, can't see it. And no one listening knows who Mike Bullard is. You should. He was great. I love him. I saw I saw Mike Bullard live in Halifax, and he was a delight. What, did he just do crowd work the whole yeah. time? Yeah. No, he literally did. He, and he said it. He always, it was funny because he always said this, and it was always true. He had three written jokes in his act, and everything else was crowd work. And that's exactly what happened, and it was a delight. 39 Steps. Let's talk about the critique of this movie. Because Jason, nothing. No? No Oscars. No. No Golden Globes. Weird. Uh, BAFTAs Wait, weren't a th- 1935. I guess the Oscars, Oscars were around. around. Uh, BAFTAs weren't really a thing at the time. No. Not, not for several years. So that was that was out of the question. But I will say that contemporary reviews at the time were very positive. Uh, for example, uh, the New York Times said, if the, if the work has any single rival as the most original, literate, and entertaining melodrama of 1935, then it must be The Man Who Knew Too Much, which is also out of Mr. Hitchcock's workshop. Mm-hmm. A master of shock and suspense, of cold horror, and slyly incongruous wit, he uses the camera the way a painter uses his brush, stylizing a story and giving it values which the scenarists could hardly have suspected uh variety said international spy stories are most always good and this is one of the best smartly cut with sufficient comic comedy relief first class entertainment said someone else uh the new yorker speed suspense and surprises all combined to make 39 steps one of those agreeable thrillers that can beguile the idle hour mystery experts will enjoy the whole thing this movie is also orson welles's favorite hitchcock movie oh wow uh one of his favorite movies of all time to which the quote from him is just like oh my god what a masterpiece he loves this movie so much so got something here for you jason uh-huh. so much so that the mercury theater um adapted the book 39 steps into a radio play and i've got a little clip for that oh yes let's hear it and you'll notice it's very different because this is closer to the book than the movie on the 15th of july there will be others in london i don't know who he had a name for them name of he called them the black stone but somehow this information those secrets about our fleet destined for France will be diverted into their hands on that day, July 15th, and will be used, used, remember, a week or two later against England by our deadly foe with great guns and swift torpedoes suddenly in the darkness of a summer night. I know you don't believe this. I didn't when he told it. I do now. Love hearing Orson Welles' voice, though. Yeah, so uh, he, of course, 
starred in it because he's Orson Welles and it's his fucking theater. So. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's just I thought that was interesting. Um, that is really cool. It was in uh, 1939, so it was only four years after this came out. Same year, I believe. Was that the same year as the uh, World of the Worlds, maybe? Or was that mm, earlier? I'm not sure. I know it was t- two years before Citizen Kane. That's true. So that's pre-Citizen Kane, Orson yeah, Welles. Yeah, well, when Orson Welles was, like, you know, b- cutting his teeth in radio and making a name for himself. Yeah. So, 39 Steps. What do you think? Great fucking movie, Brendan. Amazing. Great. Innovative. Innovative and holds up. Like, it's still really entertaining to watch. You can't wipe this movie from history because it is the fabric of yeah. so many A movies. A blueprint, you might say, for some, for an entire genre. Like, like, that, like that quote said, every fucking escapist, like, high-tension, suspense thriller, man-on-the-run, whatever, all comes from this. It laid down the, it laid down the pipe. Like, I mean, you can maybe say there have been elements of this before this movie, but I don't think anything nearly as successful. Well, I can't think of any movie I've seen that old. And to be fair, I haven't seen a whole lot of movies from the 30s, but, like, like it just is such a, an interesting and fast-paced movie for its time and entertaining. Like I say, entertaining as hell. Everybody's good in the movie, and the dialogue is fun and witty and, and you know, must have been very different than a lot of the other stuff that was around at that period. Well, and I'll let you know, too, I actually was embarking on a little bit of a project uh, a couple years ago where I was trying to watch every Hitchcock movie. Yeah. I got up to, I finished Rebecca, so I did all of his British stuff. Yeah. And I can tell you that not all of his British stuff is great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he does a lot of, like, he, there's a lot of, like, weird things, weird movies thrown in there. Like, he did a movie about uh, Johan... I don't know. Sebastian Bach? He did a movie called Waltzes with Vienna. Okay. And it was strange. The um, composer. Yeah. It was like a musical. It was oh, really weird. weird. <laughs> so, uh, but like, that having been said, this really sticks out if you watch his British films. Like, this is this, The Man Who Knew Too Much, probably The Lodger, and of course, the movie we're going to talk about some other time, The Lady Vanishes, definitely stick out major and then once he gets to his american film it's just like hit yeah. hit 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 until the very end with family like plots <laughs> family plots yeah family plot maybe not uh, family plots plot. is probably <laughs> plots it's a plots but um but he had, like you know he had a couple of like uh that paul newman movie that he did that wasn't that well received but i guess he hated paul newman no but anyway so like a couple of misses along the way but one of the most consistently solid directors and always reinventing himself like always challenging himself uh like psycho was like the biggest mm-hmm. people say psycho is like you know a lot of people say it's one of the greatest films of all time probably best hitchcock movie but it's so different from every other hitchcock movie so i mean this is a guy who and as as at least as influential as 39 steps if not more yeah um certainly people more people remember psycho than the 39 steps but, oh yeah i mean psycho laid down the pattern for much of the horror genre i mean you say hitchcock I guarantee you somebody's going to say Psycho. Yeah, that's what people... That is immediately what comes to mind. Uh, yeah, Psycho and maybe like second would be like Vertigo or something. Yeah. Like it's... it Or Rear Window. Rear Window, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, this movie is uh, groundbreaking. Absolutely. It, it, number four, I mean, I understand why it's there because it it's... It makes total it's sense. Super influential. Um, yeah. Anything else you want to say about that movie? Go watch this movie. Criterion has a disc of it. Check it out. Very easy to find. It's out there. Now, Jason, we come time. to the time. It's Vader time. It's Vader time, which means it is time to, to roll. Put on our dirty uh, wrestling gear that we don't wash because it's bad luck. 
Is that a Vader thing? Yeah, that was Leon White's, uh, that was his superstition. He wouldn't wash his wrestling gear because he thought it was bad luck. And of course, then the question becomes, well, it's not a competition, so why do you need luck? <laughs> that is gross. Wait, ever? He never washed it? Apparently, he not very often, as I understand from people who have wrestled with him. Mm. All right, well. Maybe Stan Hansen's nose is as bad as his eyes. <laughs> I can only hope. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to roll the dice, because this is my turn, Jason. That's right, it is. And the number that I get on the dice will correspond with the number on the BFI Top 100 list that we will cover next week. It's a very tense moment, full of high drama and suspense. Let's see what we get. Let's see what we get. Let's see if we get something different, something yeah. similar, something long, something short. Something funny, something, something new, sad. something old. Something borrowed, something blue. That's right. Four weddings and a funeral. We'll do it again. <laughs> All right, here we go. So I'm going to roll the tens D first. The, t- the D10. The D10. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Just to up the tension. Ready? All right, here we go. 40. Okay, 40 40s. something. 40 something. What are we going to get here? 47. 47? That would be 1959's I'm All Right, Jack, directed by John Bolting. No idea. No, nothing about it. Nothing at all. All right. Well, you know what? It's been a while since we've done a movie that we were kind of like dumbfounded by, so let's uh, Let's hop into it. it. Yeah, sure. Why not? I'm All Right, Jack, number 47 on the BFI Top 100. I'm calling it. I bet you it's a kitchen sink. I I think it might be a comedy. That's good, too. I think so. Because I think I remember seeing the poster, and the poster looked pretty funny. Okay. So we'll see. Um, watch it be like about like a horrible like rape revenge movie yes. or something. It's not a comedy <laughs> at all. 1959. Yeah. Is it 1959? Yeah. Okay. You can find that movie, check it out, and then listen to us talk about it and spoil it if you haven't watched it. That's right. But until then, Jason, you can find us on the social medias. Just look on Facebook, search for us. We're under for screen and country. Of course, it'd be weird if we were under something else on Facebook. It would be, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, you can find us on Twitter at BFI underscore pod. You can find Jason on Twitter at Jason D. McLeod. That's M-A-C-L-E-O-D. And I mean, speaking of what we were, we were just talking about earlier, he uh, usually just talks about uh, I Spit on Your Grave and its various remakes. Um, and, in uh, detail also also constant discussion of the old PC game uh, I have no mouth and I must scream sure <laughs> don't know what that is but let's do that let's go with it um, but also now is the time to say to you to me and again if anyone else is listening this is between Jason and I so stay out of it it's really rude to interrupt so if keep you're it to yourselves yeah. cram hey, it hey Craig don't need the comments right now Danny, Houston, Danny and Houston, Danny, Danny and Houston? Houston. No, no, Danny and Houston. Oh, they, okay. their parents were big Danny Houston fans. Okay, uh, <laughs> who's a big Danny Houston fan? I don't know. Their parents, Angie. Calm down. So, Jason, Brendan, put on my blinders so I can All look right. right at you. I have one thing to say to you. Say it to me, Brendan. God save the queen. God save the screen. And for Screen and Country, I'm Brendan. And I'm Jason. What are the 39 steps? <gasps> An organization of spies!
And it's going to be Hitchcock. That's a different movie. Oh. I mean, it was, yeah, it was a Hitchcock movie, though, right? No, Friday the 13th? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Alfred Hitchcock's Friday the 13th. Ladies and gentlemen, this week's discussion. It's time, let's check our cue, baby. Pair it with a couple brews, baby. We love your movies. We love the bad ones, too. So we watch them all and pass their lessons on to you. Oh, yeah. Everything I learned from movies helps to make life a little bit groovy. With a one life's plot holes, a gratuitous movie. It's time to get busy with your friend Stephen Izzy at eilfm.podbean.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Ashley. And I'm Justine. And, and we make up the Cutaways Podcast. We're watching the good, the bad, and the essentials of the romantic comedy genre. So far, we've fallen in love with Cary Grant, met up with our terrible friend, pal Joey, and had the desire to run our fingers through Patrick Dempsey's hair. Join our slumber party for your ears every other week, brought to you in stereo from our blanket fort in Hollywood, California. You can find and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher. Our digital blanket fort can be found at thecutaways.com. If you are the social butterfly types, you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as at Cutaways Podcast. Bye!